Hello, my name is Angelica Love and I am one of the 2018 cohort of Cumberland Lodge Scholars. On the 1st and 2nd of November, I had the privilege of attending a conference on race and inequality in Britain at Cumberland Lodge. It was organised together with the Runnymede Trust and it brought together social scientists, policymakers, political commentators, activists and representatives of organisations that are already very active in tackling inequality in Britain today. After the jam-packed conference, the principal of Cumberland Lodge, Ed Newell, and I thought it would be useful to process our thoughts on the event and the key takeaways, together with Omar Khan, the CEO of Runnymede Trust, in a podcast. So a couple of days after the conference, we met in the busy cafe inside London's Pillbox and recorded our reflections on the event for anyone who is interested in the work of Cumberland Lodge. This is a very new medium for us, as I'm sure you'll be able to tell from the podcast. We're still learning about what recording equipment to use. And of course, that places with a lot of background noise should be avoided. So the sound quality is something we're working on for future episodes. But we hope that you nevertheless enjoy learning more about race and inequality in Britain, about Cumberland Lodge's wider mission and about our partnership with Britain's largest independent race and inequality think tank. Enjoy the podcast. Today I'm joined by the Principal of the Educational Charity Cumberland Lodge, Ed Newell, and the Director of the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading independent race equality think tank, Omar Khan. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's use this conversation as an opportunity to reflect a bit further on the conference, its overarching themes and our own takeaways from it. And I was hoping that we could start by talking a little bit about how the conference came about in the first place and how your alliance came about as well. I suppose a starting point would be that Cumberland Lodge is working now very much on issues to do with um, social cohesion and the problems in society which are causing fractures in, in society. That's, that's the, the theme that we're working with. We've also worked with the Runnymede Trust in the past and we felt that a partnership with them would be good, but there's also a very specific uh, reason for doing it at this time, which Omar, I'm sure, will tell us about. Yes, no, that, that's right, Ed. I mean, we've worked with Cumberland Lodge in the past. Most notably, we held our 40th anniversary uh, at Cumberland Lodge 10 years ago, and as Ed sort of hints at, this year is our 50th anniversary. Uh, we were founded in October 1968 to nail the lie on racism. Uh, our initial founders uh, were Jim Rose and Anthony Lester. They were uh, human rights activists, and they were also quite involved in the early legislation the 1965-1968 and then Lord Lester wrote the 1976 Race Relations Act. So for us it was a good time to take stock and you know having been to Cumberland Lodge before one of the things that we feel is it's sometimes important to have the space and the time to think and one of the great features of Cumberland Lodge is that it, it both in terms of format and in terms of uh, just the grounds and the experience uh, it, it, it allows for less social media fast thinking and more slow thinking and reflective thinking which I think is uh, sadly a bit of a luxury today. And in that regard it was invaluable really to bring so many different voices together who shared an ambition to bring about greater social equality and integration in the UK but who also came at it from, from lots of different perspectives. Yeah I think we designed the conference in, in that way. Uh, you know we had a number of panels and Cumberland Lodge and, and Running Me kind of shared some of the, the responsibility for those themes. And 
yes, to, to bring academics together with those who are actually working on issues. So we had professors of, of sort of race who had a more, I suppose, theoretical approach or a more data-driven approach. And then we had people from communities who were trying to challenge some of the inequalities that the professors outlined. And I think we need both. I think in order to tackle any uh, social issue, you need good thinking so that you have the right approach and right understanding of what the issue is. Uh, because if you have the wrong analysis, you'll get the wrong answers. But you also need people who are practically driven about trying to move it forward. And I think we had a nice, I think, a good balance, both in terms of our presenters, but also in terms of the audience or participants. I think one of the things we find at Common Lodge generally is that when we bring together people from different sectors, they often say, I wish we'd had these sorts of conversations before because there's so much we can learn from each other. And it provides a really, really strong way of, of taking things forward and things are really well thought through. And there are people there who are able to deliver. Yeah. What were the sort of key themes that you saw emerge over these two days? One of the things that really struck me um, was the importance of history particularly Britain's colonial history. And I was hearing things that were making me think, do we really understand in our society how the country that we have today has been formed by people from all sorts of different backgrounds? I'm not sure we do. And that really came across to me as a, as a particular thing that we ought to be addressing um, from an educational perspective. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, when you look at the data or even look at the categories in the census in terms of the ethnic groups, I mean, they're, the categories we have are not uh, scientific or straightforward ethnic categories. They reflect, rather, in many ways, Britain's own past, uh, the groups that are in large numbers in Britain, but also the groups that experience inequalities are not random. They tend to be, you know, there's a reason why people with Asian or African surnames have to send in twice as many CVs and not other, you know, backgrounds. So I think I, I very much agree with, with Ed that we need to understand better our history and to that end we've produced a website called Our Migration Story that seeks to do that both in schools but also hopefully uh, in, the, in the university history curriculum. I think the other key takeaway for me was we can talk about evidence and data all we like, but we need to figure out how to communicate, not just the history that Ed quite rightly refers to, but also the evidence, because the evidence is complex, and data also doesn't convince people. If data by itself changed things, we'd be, I think, a bit further along, because Runnymede has been producing data-driven reports for 50 years. And the reality is our founders established us and probably would have hoped that we'd be out of business by now because the aims that we're trying to achieve should have been achieved by now. So I think it's necessary for us to reflect, is this the right way or the only way to go about creating social change? Yes, you both mentioned quite cognitive, quite thought-driven changes, data-oriented, education-oriented changes through changes in the history curriculums and to changes of the, in, in the resources that people have access to. But something that emerged throughout the conference was really also the importance of heart-driven changes, hearts and minds. 
what initiatives do you think are great examples where people come together to in a more experiential learning way, way where they develop empathy for each other and trust for each other? Certainly at Cumberland Lodge something we do regularly is try to bring people together from very different backgrounds and just get them to know each other and to share things. We've been working with international students on a project uh, for a couple of years and we brought people together from all around the world of different faiths and cultures and they spent three weekends together getting to know each other and discussing pretty difficult issues to do with, with beliefs. What we find there is once you get to know people and you start to form relationships and friendships, you can start to talk about difficult stuff in a way which is mutually enriching and doesn't lead to conflict. And I think those sorts of encounters are so, so important. I think the other aspect of that is trying to tell stories uh, about human beings as opposed to just sort of high-minded narratives. I mean, I think even things like Britishness or civic identity, they make sense to academics and maybe even to journalists and policymakers. But the real lived experience of most people uh, in Britain is that they interact mainly with neighbors, with teachers, with uh, bus drivers, and, and, and it's those kinds of relationships that, that matter just as much. So, you know, the, the Our Migration Story site doesn't just abstractly talk about migration waves to Britain. They're actually individuals named, and their stories are used to sort of explain a wider range of migration experiences, but there is a personal individual at the center of it, a, a, an individual nurse from St. Lucia, for example, or something that might be interesting to school children, which is the skeleton that was found in a monastery and the story that uh, the sort of sort of almost science fiction-y kind of uh, investigation that archaeologists have to do sometimes. Um, but we also, you know, in the work that we do, really do try to bring people together from all different ethnic groups. I think one of the challenges that's happened is the kind of approach we have, which is a race equality approach, or even in an old-fashioned maybe anti-racist approach, has been supplanted by a more uh, ethnic communities organizing amongst themselves. And one of the things that Runnymede, I think, kind of, not uniquely, but is somewhat unique, I would say, in pr providing is a platform for black, Asian, Jewish, new migrant communities to come together, whereas a lot of the other organizations that exist in this space tend to represent maybe only one community. And I, I, that's hard work for us, and we have to always make sure that we're doing it uh, well, but I think it's something that we're very conscious of, that, that it's it's not good enough just to work with one community. You have to work with all communities. And of course, that means uh, the white British majority community as well. And we're currently doing some work on race and class, where we're looking at the ways in which race and class intersect, but also mutually can create tension and division within and across uh, ethnic and racial and class uh, boundaries. I'm glad you mentioned that. Sometimes I worry that the discussion about reducing racism and increasing equality is framed in a zero-sum sort of way, where we need to talk less about advantaged communities and more about disadvantaged communities. We need to... And, and some, some people from advantaged communities or advantaged in some way, disadvantaged in others, might think of that as a threatening conversation, as multiculturalism as something that excludes them by default or that tries to diminish their, their status in society. What do you think about that sort of challenge and how might it be overcome? How might we create a shared stake in equality that, that is involving people across different sectors of society? That's a big question. I think one of the, the big issues that 
in any in any discussion around race is about um, difference and otherness and how one embraces it and stops it being a source of, of fear and also when people perceive others as benefiting and others losing out you then start to uh, to get all sorts of other emotions coming into the mix and frustration jealousy and so on and so forth it's a really really threat it's a risk really really difficult and addressing inequalities and providing some structural ways of dealing with them clearly important as well as the again going back to, to trying to, to build positive relationships yeah. yeah I think it is a it is a big challenge and I think it's in some ways got worse in part because we haven't tackled some of these inequalities over the years and in part because the discussion has become sharper internationally as well as here in, in Britain uh, I think there is one way I think of, of tackling this which is to try to focus at least first in a conversation on the shared experience and the shared interests. I think that's an approach that a lot of organizers, for example, uh, would take, so that if you're in, for example, a local authority where the schools aren't, aren't maybe need improvement or where the roads have potholes, we can all you have that shared experience of, of being uh, irritated with the local with the council for not for not fixing that and it makes people realize actually they're not so different from me they have similar difficulties and similar experiences and st- similar hopes for their children so I, I support all of that I think having said that I think we can't shy away from the fact that this will be difficult conversations and there will be some conflict it has to be managed I absolutely agree with that but I don't know that we can aim for a world in which we solve social inequalities and discrimination whether that's racism sexism or homophobia without having some uncomfortable conversations so I think we all are gonna have to get a little bit more used to having uncomfortable conversations and I, you know, one of the big themes that came out of the conference was the utility or difficulty of talking about whiteness and white privilege, which I think for a lot of black and minority ethnic people isn't just an intellectual claim or something about, you know, trying to be politically radical. It's actually their lived experience, um, and, and they feel and their experience is such that that, that helps to explain the way they've had to navigate the world and I I think that's a plausible experiential view but for a lot of uh, disadvantaged white communities they can often hear that as being um, that they're experiencing privilege whereas their communities uh, have seen a complete lack of investment a complete loss of jobs and in some cases a kind of loss of uh, local identity that revolved around the kinds of work whether that was you know a mining community or whether that was a community that used to have more manufacturing so I think it is a challenge but I think we can and we need to find a, a way through it to to reflect and listen to everyone's voice and I think it would be a mistake to shut down people's voices in advance just because it makes uh, other people uncomfortable. There's a very interesting tension really between unlocking consensus and creating shared visions across the population on the one hand and on the other hand glossing over differences. We need to acknowledge and celebrate as you said Ed and, and appreciate diversity but not endeavor I think to make it to make us into a homogenous blend where we're all pretending to be the same yes so that's I think a real real big social challenge to that that multicultural societies like like Britain will have to face Omar you mentioned having challenging having difficult conversations it's something that that 
came up during the conference again and again with people across all different sectors saying we need to have more difficult conversations and as an audience member I kept wondering throughout the conference what is a difficult conversation? What characterizes it as difficult? Where can we have it? How do we get people involved who don't want to have a conversation? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean I think the space uh, you know it, it sounds like it's a luxury the Cumberland Lodge space and in some ways it is but I think we do need more time. I think it is part of the problem that we're so used to working long hours but also engaging with politics or with the news or with even human interactions in in two short chunks. I think we need longer periods of time and I think you probably having said that we need difficult conversations I think you do need to build up to them I don't think you can just immediately have that difficult conversation I think one distinctive feature of the event was that a lot of the people did know each other and they knew what the kind of uh, experience was going to be like so it was reasonable to have difficult conversations in that space but yeah I would be wary of trying to just go right on in to a community that I've never visited before and you know bring two groups together and say okay let's let's have a challenging difficult conversation no I think you first do need to do some work yeah to, to build trust between communities to build understanding mm-hmm. between communities and actually within those communities too I think you need to uh, build them up because some sometimes they can't even articulate well their own experiences they haven't been listened to there whether that's you know white working class communities or whether that's migrant communities whether that's women experiencing domestic violence who are asylum seekers their voices aren't listened to enough and so it, they will need support first to articulate clearly uh, I mean th- their experience which yeah. which um, the reality is they are doing it but we're not listening um, and and we'll need to be able to make the environment comfortable for them to articulate that experience so it's clearly a multi-step approach there, isn't it? there's a lot that needs to be done uh, I mean not sadly but I, I think we're not doing enough to, to build it and I worry that some of the ways that uh, public discussions and public debates go and the shutting down of public space generally I don't think we have enough public spaces for people even to where, where do you go where would you go yeah, if you exactly. wanted let's say this weekend you wanted to have a conversation about this and and you were really sort of civically minded in that way where would you even go well many people would go online these days yeah. and we we know from research on hostility on the internet that conversations in chat forums are just much more coarse than they are in person. Mm. Ed, did you have any any? Thoughts? I do, yes. I mean, uh, Cameron Lodge does try to convene groups for uh, difficult conversations. I think Omar hit the nail on the head when he talked about trust yeah. um, building up to a difficult conversation. I think you need to set the ground rules, get people to know each other, get people to trust each other and be willing to confide in each other. But it also it means just stepping over the normal uh, boundaries of what we would discuss within a community. And sometimes I think we're frightened to, to tackle really difficult issues. And I think that's where you need to step one, take one step further. So in a community group, you might get to know your neighbours, you might eat together, you might socialise together. Can you actually take that one step further and really start to get to the nitty-gritty things that cause problems in that community. That requires the art of listening as well as, uh, as, as, well as speaking. And I think cultivating that art of listening and just be willing to, or learn, to, 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 to just get someone else's perspective, to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to be more empathetic. That's a really difficult thing to do, but it's a really important thing to do. You may need someone to help facilitate it, but it, it's, it's 
is where one has to go really if you're going to really get down to, to, to discuss difficult things. The public narrative in the UK is increasingly becoming one of we're a very polarised society, we're a divided society, Brexit seems to have only have amplified these divisions. So where do people go? Do you have any suggestions and thoughts what the individual citizen can do in order to increase, to step out of their echo chamber and ultimately to create opportunities for bridging that divide, for meeting people from the other side of the fence? I mean, I think it's a danger to sort of imply that there's only one division in British society. I'm not, you know, I think that is, I agree with you, that is the public narrative that there's remainers and leavers and that's the sort of only and main uh, division in society and you line up on one side or the other whereas in fact it's a good thing that in society we have multiple divisions and cleavages and that I think it's something that we need to hold on to that you know even in places like Islington a quarter of the population voted to leave and even in places like Sunderland over a quarter voted to remain and, and even amongst ethnic minority communities while the, the large majority did vote to remain a, a third voted amongst Asians to leave and a quarter amongst black people so there are many ways in which we identify. It's not just in terms of our ethnic background, it's not just in terms of our gender, and it's definitely not just in terms of how we voted in the EU referendum. Uh, I think locally, actually, some good work is happening. So I think, you know, um, especially, actually, uh, ironically, given the way that we've been talking about this, in working class communities where they're challenging, say, cuts to local services or libraries, I think you do see in certain areas, especially around public services in a local area. Schools, I think where you, you see parents groups coming together to try to improve uh, even things like school meals or the buildings at a time when they're facing cuts or where there might need to be more support services because the teaching and support staff is being cut and, and local parents are having to step up and off their after school clubs. Uh, I think you see it in terms of housing and you see it in terms of, as I said, uh, in local libraries. So I think it's not just sort of us uh, in the more intellectual middle class frame who are needing to think about how we come together. Maybe we could learn more from what's going on uh, where there is actually some solidarity or at least camaraderie amongst working class communities. Because the reality is um, there's more ethnic mixing amongst the working class in cities in Britain uh, than there often is amongst uh, the middle class. And uh, those public services are, are an opportunity. Yeah, so the starting point would be recognize that we all contain multitudes. Yes. <laughs> and, and then find the nexus that's with a the other person. That's a more concise answer. <laughs> So let's, to wrap up, let's finally talk about our, our main takeaways from this. What are we going to do next? What is going to happen to the various themes that came up during the conference? Ed, what are, the, what are your plans? Well, the plan, to speak on a more practical level, what we want to do is to, once we've got the report from the conference, see are there particular things that really bubble out that we, we think we can, we can actually have some impact on and work on. So when we've identified those, we'll then convene a follow-up. Uh, discussion and trying to bring in some new voices and maybe some antagonistic voices in to have one of those difficult uh, conversations. When we then hone the report down, we'd then like to present it in a more public forum a bit down the line, probably in about six months' time. So that's very practical, but Omar might want to say something about the more uh, tangible bits of it all. No, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to the further outcomes, including the policy briefing as well and the 
we also presented some of the early findings of a report we're about to publish in the spring. So I think both the presentations uh, on the day from, from that session, but also the audience response to it, uh, will inform the way in which we write that report, which is an account of, of race in Britain today. I think, secondly, there were a lot of people there who were doing things on the ground that I think I want to stay in touch with and learn from. Uh, we're doing some work uh, on race and class that I've referred to. So I think there's some practical things that will develop further. And I think the final uh, practical thing is, is the first point that I made, which is around our history and the curriculum. So, you know, we need to think, I think, a bit more about how this website that we produce, but also other resources that now exist to teach uh, the history of migration and the history potentially of empire and colonialism, how we ensure that happens, but how we ensure that happens in a productive uh, rather than an antagonistic and, and divisive way. And if our listeners want to get involved with the work either of the Cumberland Lodge or the Runnymede Trust, where do they go? I think they go to the internet. Um, <laughs> look up uh, Cumberland Lodge. Look up the right Cumberland Lodge, otherwise you might end up having a holiday somewhere, um, which you hadn't planned for. But if you go to www.cumberlandlodge.ac.uk, you'll get to the right one. Yeah, and our, our website's www.runningmeadtrust.org. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, which goes out about once a month. And uh, we have a number of events, including this one at Cumberland Lodge, but also other sorts of events. We have an event with the Free Word Center coming up next month. We had an event in Manchester uh, last month with Tommy Smith, an athlete who won the 1968 Olympic gold medal. So we, we do a variety of events, and we're always looking uh, to partner uh, with people. And you can sign up for our newsletter. Thank you both so, so very much for organizing the conference and for joining me for reflections. Thank you.